Hello, everyone. Welcome back. I am, first and foremost, very excited to be back. And you're just going to have to deal with a little bit of a raspy voice because I just got back from Mexico. And I think that three days of drinking and being in the sun has done a little number on me, but that is not going to stop me from recording today's episode. So again, welcome back. Thank you for showing up here. Thank you for listening. It means the absolute world to me. I will be really truthful and say that my podcast has certainly taken a backseat in my life and there have just been a lot of things going on, um, including just working two jobs and kind of generally being unhappy with that whole situation. I don't want to come on here and talk crap about it. I can certainly do a more detailed episode on people management and career movement and everything else like that. Um, But the experience was very bittersweet. I am still staying within my larger parent company, which is really exciting, um, but just moving to a different branch. So I'm very thankful for the last year. It gave me a lot of skills. It was certainly challenging. There were certainly moments that were fun and there were certainly moments that were very stressful and everything else um but the world really came together and the timing was just really perfect to make an exit strategy and get to do something new and exciting so here we are we're not getting super deep into it because you know what you guys I'm sick and tired of fucking talking about it (laughs) so I wanted to come on here and talk about something that I now have the time for which is reading um I will no longer work weekends which is really nice Uh, and I quit my secondary job at Allo. So I have a lot of time on my hands and I just went to Barnes and Noble today and bought Atlas of the Heart by Brene Brown. She is one of my absolute favorite researchers. I am really excited to talk about this book. I'm breaking it down chapter by chapter. I don't know if I'll do a mini series of I read it so you don't have to or whatever it might be. It still falls within the category of this being a health and wellness type podcast or whatever I feel like I'm doing podcast. So I think my goal this time around with my podcast is to really get a idea of how I want to direct this. And I know I think I said on my last episode that I was really just going to talk about whatever I wanted because it was feeling super scripted. But I also think it's because I didn't have the time to really talk about what I wanted in great depth. So here we are. We're ready to do something new. Let's dive in. I'll give you a general background of Brene Brown just so you know who she is. And then we will talk a little bit more about the introduction of the book, the goal and premise of the book, and then we'll get into the first chapter. So I am very excited. So if you're unfamiliar with who Brene is or you've not read any of her books, I cannot recommend them enough. And watching her TED Talks, her TED Talk is really what I believe truly kickstarted her career as far as really pushing her to popular and larger audiences. So please take time to watch that if you can. Um, But a lot of her books are Daring to Lead, Daring Greatly, um, Imperfections, and um, there's a couple other ones. And then we'll be talking about Atlas of the Heart today. But The general premise of Atlas of the Heart is to make sure that we have a language um, that helps us acknowledge, label, interpret, and process and uh, communicate our emotions. And on a global level, I'm not really sure, but at least in America, we were never given these tools. You learn them in elementary, you know, I'm feeling happy, I'm feeling sad, I'm feeling angry. And those are three emotions that she talks about 
in how she came up with the 87 that are actually in this book. But we tend to lose that type of connection to those languages and everything else that we use to communicate with ourselves. And that gets clouded by a lot of different things, whether that's high school, college, postgraduate, you know, substances that cloud our our ability to do those types of things, to connect with those parts of ourselves. And we oftentimes use a lot of things like avoidance, which we'll talk about today, uh, to not have to be in touch with these things. But Um, you're gonna hear some pages turning so you're just gonna have to ignore that in the background think of it as maybe ASMR if you will Uh, but Brene has a really beautiful way of talking about and introducing language so she does say that language is our portal to meaning making connections healing learning self-awareness and having access to the right words can open up just universes for us as far as communication goes not only with others but with also ourselves which I think is beautiful it helps us manage our self-awareness and naming our experience doesn't give the experience more power it just gives us the power of understanding and meaning you know what we are feeling so I think that that is really great she also talks a bit about how language speeds and strengthens connections in the brain when we're processing sensory information if you're unfamiliar Brene does a lot of work within neuroscience and I studied neuroscience in school, so this is very cool and and very like bread and butter. Um, But she does say that newer research shows that when our access to emotional language is blocked, our ability to interpret incoming emotional information is significantly diminished. Likewise, having the correct words to describe specific emotions makes us better able to identify those emotions in others, as well as recognize and manage the emotional experiences when we feel them ourselves. And I think that that is a really nice way to talk about what she's doing within this book. So we can have the world's longest conversation about nature versus nurture. What we do want to talk about is the fact that human emotions and experiences exist. It just depends on the amount of ones that exist. And they did a emotional experiences content analysis um, from comments that she had from a course that she was teaching. So they had 66,000 participants. There were almost half a million comments, which is absolutely insane. They put them all to spreadsheets and then they went through using two different questions. So the questions were, what are the emotions and experiences that emerge the most often? And which emotions and experiences do people struggle to name or label? It gave about 150 different emotions and experiences. And then she invited a group of different therapists that work in a diverse mental health settings. And so then they put all 150 emotions on these little post-its around a room. And then they were actually asked to tag them with red, yellow, or green stickers. So then what they did is through there went parsed down the information. They ended up with the 87 that they have. It took her three years to write this book, which I think is amazing. I think everything she does is well thought out. It's well researched. Um, So this is kind of where we're at and where we start with the whole book. Um, So the first chapter is in relation to number one. Chapter number one is the places we go when we are uncertain or too much. This includes the following emotions that we'll break down in our podcast today. So stress, overwhelm, anxiety, worry, avoidance, excitement, dread, fear, and vulnerability. And you might think, 
those all really sound similar. And so in each subsection, she gives definitions and examples about how they are different. The first emotion we're going to talk about is stress. And stress is defined as the evaluation of the environmental demand as beyond our capacity to cope successfully. It includes elements of unpredictability, uncontrollability, and feeling overloaded. When we're stressed, we have a physiological or a body response, and then we also have a psychological or a mind or emotional reaction. No matter our physiological reaction, our emotional reaction is tied to the more cognitive assessment of whether or not we can cope, regardless of what's happening within our body. So think of it as thinking of how well you can handle something. If I go into something that I know is already going to be stressful or I'm experiencing something stressful and I'm like, I can't do this, I can't do this, I can't do this. Yes, I can. Mentally, physically, I'm having a reaction, but mentally I need to assess whether or not I can. And whether that assessment is I can or cannot do that is whether or not we're experiencing stress, right? But there are obviously a lot of side effects that come with stress. Chronic exposure to stress can lead to detrimental health effects, which we all know includes like rapid aging, poor heart health, poor brain health, sleep distribution, everything is affected by stress. So it is very important that we find out how to personally define stress and then how to cope with it. What we're talking about with stress that often shakes its hand is feeling overwhelmed, which is the second emotion or baseline emotion that she identifies. Being overwhelmed is the extreme level of stress on an emotional or cognitive intensity to the point of that you're feeling like you're unable to function. And that's a really key point. And what we talk about or what she talks about in the book is John Kabat-Zinn, who is a researcher, describes that being overwhelmed is that our lives are unfolding faster than our human nervous system and psyche are able to manage. So the care for that is mindful play, no agenda, non-doing times. I think one of the best things or best examples that I can personally think of is when I used to be a server and a bartender and I would say you know what I am overwhelmed with the situation I just need help and I just need to disengage with what's going on you know like I'm in the weeds like can anyone grab drinks for this table I have bar drinks in the well and I need to go grab this order and then I'm gonna do this so I don't have to engage with any else of that I have no responsibility I can just focus on the one task in front of me and get it done and she talks about her serving experiences in the book too which I thought was really interesting um, because I just had a serving nightmare last night which I haven't served a table in a very long time you guys so it's important to remember in moments of stress and being overwhelmed how it imprints on your mind and how it imprints in your body um, and what you take away from that experience am I afraid of serving tables no I absolutely had the most fun of my life but it taught me how to manage stress and how to manage being overwhelmed and that plays out into my career today which is really exciting and cool to see the next emotion that we've tied in into this first chapter is anxiety and there's a really great image in this book and I will read you the quote from it um, because I don't know if I can find the exact tweet um, but it says you are afraid of surrender because you don't want to lose control, but you never had control. All you had was anxiety. And she really succinctly talks about anxiety and just the pure definitions of anxiety and how we kind of cope with anxiety. 
um, and a little bit of general anxiety disorder. It does not get into all the subtypes. This is not the DSM for anxiety, so we won't get into that. And I think that anxiety is really loosely thrown around in society and culture right now. And for people who actually suffer it on a very extreme level or chronically, I think it can be really hard. Um, and, and really like everyone takes their anxiety as a joke and that just simply is not the case for a lot of people who are on medication for it, in therapy for it, you know, actively trying to work for it. So I think that this will be very helpful to hear uh, the definitions for anxiety. So the American Psychological Association defines anxiety as an emotion characterized by feelings of tension, worried thoughts, and physical changes like increased blood pressure. I don't know why they said that. I would personally say that there's a lot of different ones besides that, um, but it can be something that is both a state and a trait um, of something that you experience. And basically the Oxford definitions of those two things, a trait is part of a personality and a long-term characteristic of an individual that shows through their behaviors, their actions, and their feelings. And a state is a temporary condition that they're experiencing short term. And then once the state is passed through, you'll return to another baseline condition. So state and traits, some people feel anxious and responsive to situations. And some people are just actually just naturally predisposed to anxiety more than others. So when we're talking experiencing anxiety and being diagnosed with anxiety, right, or having a condition. I know I did a previous episode on mental health, but one third of U.S. adults will be affected by anxiety in their lifetime. And of those folks, 50% will only get help. And it's books like these. So if you want to know more or maybe you're not ready to enter therapy or you're just in a state trait type of relationship with anxiety, these books will give you the language to be able to discern from that. And I think that personally, like anxiety comes with a lot of nuances. For me, it's a lifestyle adjustment. So I have to worry about my caffeine consumption. There are days where I'm just really tired and that's from having anxiety and OCD. And I want coffee really bad, but if it's later than one or 2 p.m., my body's really sensitive to caffeine. So I will not have caffeine past then or I won't like drink something like a bang energy or anything like that. And I have to make sure that I'm very regular with my eating. I have to make sure that I'm available to get movement in during my week because that's a really great outlet for my anxiety personally. I don't need it every day, but I do need it weekly because I feel pent up like I want to jump out of my skin. And I think for a lot of women, it comes with menstrual cycles and PMS. You have to just be aware of it's that time of the month. I know that I'm going to be a little bit more anxious. This is a state of anxiety if I'm not already diagnosed with it or a heightened state of anxiety, even though I do have a diagnosis that I have to be prepared for. So having the language and the terms for this is absolutely essential. And when we talk a lot about anxiety, we can talk a lot about worrying. Worrying is one of them that she chose to speak on. And we define worrying as a chain of negative thoughts about bad things that might happen in the future. I'm not even going to touch this definition in regards to OCD because that is a completely different thing. And this is, again, not a diagnostic type of podcast today. Um, But worrying is associated with being helpful for coping. And it is often defined as something that's uncontrollable and often something that you're trying to suppress, which can actually reinforce your thinking. And that's a big exposure response therapy tip. (laughs) 
So uh, the good news is obviously that you can control your worry. Um, You can learn to control it. You can learn to dig in and address the emotions that's driving the thinking behind worrying. And once you're able to do that, you can take a step back and, and appropriately move forward. The other type of coping for worrying is avoidance. And we will talk a little bit more about avoidant personality and avoidant attachment when we talk about the attached book. Um, But avoidance is not showing up often and spending a lot of energy just zigzagging around and away from something that already feels like it's consuming us. And avoidance, I think, is really important to highlight that avoidance is not benign and it hurts yourself and it hurts the people that are in the situation with you. Um, And I particularly feel that in dating, Uh, but it is very hard and I know exists in many dynamics outside of that. But avoidance, this is a great quote, Avoidance will make you feel less vulnerable in the short term, but it will never make you less afraid. And I love that because a lot of people are avoidant because they cannot get in front of a mirror. They cannot have the introspection to say, what is it that is driving this? What is it about this that I don't like? Why does it make me uncomfortable? And why am I afraid of it? And That's a very hard process to do and often not recommended without a therapist, Um, but you can do that work. And once you heal that part of you, you can lead yourself into vulnerability, which is what rounds out this actual chapter. But on the opposite of being worried, we can have the duality of being excited. And anxiety and excitement can be very closely tied, which I think is really interesting. Um, And we often say that, you know, anxiety is all about labeling, like I'm feeling anxious, but you can also on the, like we said, flip side, be really excited. So excitement is just being energized, right? It's enthusiasm leading up to something during a really enjoyable event or activity. So determining between the two can be really hard. So she does recommend taking a step back, connecting with how you're feeling. I love in some of my meditations that I listen to, they just say, you know, do a couple breaths and just notice the weather patterns inside of you. And I think that you can experience anxiety and excitement at the same time, but it really is how you're going to label it and move forward. So labeling excitement as an emotion has a hinge on interpreting your bodily sensations as positive, which is really cool. I love that little factoid of neuroscience, but labels are helpful because they help us know what to do next. Like if I have a speech or I'm starting a new job tomorrow, um, am I anxious? Not really. Am I excited? Absolutely. I am ready to get back to work. I'm excited to do something meaningful. But there are going to be a lot of moments where I'm sure that I feel anxious, um, that I will have imposter syndrome or whatever it might be. But by labeling this experience as excitement and saying, you know, I'm really grateful to learn something new and flipping that switch a little bit, it does take away the fear of being new, the fear of doing something new. It's just these tiny little tricks and tips that we can really put in our day-to-day to help us move through our emotions easier. And I just love that. And I know that I'm just talking to a microphone right now, but <laughs> I just want you to hear in my voice that it's just these little tiny things that you can just plug into your life and it's just changing. It just changes your whole mindset. So um, on the opposite side of excitement, 
everybody knows that you can dread something. I have been to many things that I dread, whether some days is logging into work or whether it's meeting up with people on plans that I already had or that I don't want to go to anymore, whatever it may be. Um, dread it just occurs frequently in response to a high probability negative event. It magnitudes itself as the event draws nearer. That is the well and true definition here. And sometimes it can make something move faster. I don't know about you guys, but if I dread something, one, I'll even pro- I'll procrastinate the shit out of it, right? Because I dread it so much. Or it's like ripping off the band-aid and we're like, okay, let's just get it done, right? We're just getting it done. And there's science to prove that if you are dreading something and you do it faster, you can actually have something perceived to be really bad and it actually isn't that painful. And that's just overcoming that and not using dread as an excuse to not do something, right? Like everything, something might be uncomfortable, something might be whatever, but like, We have to do it because that's just a part of life. For me, guys, it's paying my student debt every month. It's on, I put it on auto pay, you guys. That's how much I dreaded doing it. I was like, pay the amount that's due. I do not, I don't want to see it. It comes out of my bank account. It's accounted for in my budget. It's there. Uh, I don't want to look at the remaining amount because it makes me want to die. Um, So that's just a way that I've personally handled dread and also flipped on itself as far as like my education was an investment on myself and it has paid off. Thankfully, in the last five years of my career, I've had a lot of success and that's really something to be proud of. And so again, just flipping the script on some of these things is so helpful. Um, Definitely tied to dread is fear. Um, And I think we all experience fear on quite a few different levels. And I think that many items land on fear lists. Uh, But Brene Brown does say that on all of them is the fear of social rejection, which is hilarious um, and something that we all experience every single day. I think it doesn't matter what age you are. We define fear as negative, short-lasting, high-alert emotion in a response to a perceived threat and can be measured in a state-trait way like anxiety. Fear often triggers our fight, flight, or freeze response, and it definitely can occur um, before you even realize that you're afraid, and that's why we call that kind of reaction a very knee-jerk reaction. And there's a really great quote from the book that I would like to read and share with you all that describes fear. I want to go back to my dear friend and mentor, Dr. Harriet Lerner. She writes, Throughout evolutionary history, anxiety and fear have helped every species to be weary and survive. Fear can signal us to act or alternatively to resist the impulse to act. It can help us to make wise, self-protective choices in and out of relationships where we might otherwise sail mindlessly along, ignoring signs of trouble. Like all experiences in this book, both our anxiety and our fear need to be understood and respected, perhaps even befriended. We need to pull up a chair and sit with them, understand why they're showing up, and ask ourselves what is there to learn. Dismissing fear and anxiety as not useful to our quest for connection is as dangerous as choosing to live in constant fear and anxiety. I thought that that was just a really killer quote. And the last section of this book talks about 
vulnerability. And I feel like vulnerability is something that is kind of flying around as a buzzword right now, but I love it. And it is something that I have actively worked on probably over the last two and a half years, three years, because I honestly used to associate being vulnerable with being weak. And I just didn't like showing my emotions. I was just kind of like, yeah, whatever, like this makes me mad, but like, it's not life changing, whatever else. And then I don't know when it happened, but like in my early 20s, it was just all of a sudden like, bam, I have to be really vulnerable. And I believe it's when I studied abroad and I really had to admit that I missed my family, that I loved my friends and that I was really uncomfortable. And that was just a moment that it all kickstarted. So um, I think everyone can pinpoint the moment where they've really experienced vulnerability or their journey that has started leaning into vulnerability. Um, But now it is something that I truly love. And I think that vulnerability in my own words not defining it but as an idea or a theory is the gatekeeper to a rich meaningful and full human experience and I think until you can sit down and be vulnerable with yourself and others you just won't have that your relationships just don't upgrade to what they should be or what they could be like the maximum potential to allow yourself to feel all emotions without judgment without anything is just the fucking most courageous thing that you could do and living your life with an open heart is certainly painful and certainly difficult but it is just one of the most beautiful things that you can do in such a beautiful way to experience the world and the people that you spend time with in it. And I want to talk about what she says about vulnerability. Um, But we define vulnerability as an emotion we experience during times of uncertainty, risk, and emotional exposure. It shows up in many ways for a lot of different people. And while all moments of vulnerability are uncomfortable and difficult, there is absolutely no evidence that they indicate weakness. Um, Like she said, there's just no courage without vulnerability and it takes a lot of courage to show up and be all in and it takes a lot of self-discipline and self-awareness to understand when and where and with whom to share vulnerability with. We oftentimes see some people feel like they're just giving it away to the wrong people and, and whatever else and, and that does happen. It does. I've been there. It's uncomfortable um but I will never be upset with myself for letting myself experience what I was feeling in that moment or sharing or whatever it might be there's a beautiful beautiful quote that I kind of want to end on because I don't have any other notes on this but it is from the book and it says that vulnerability is not oversharing it's sharing with people who have earned the right to hear our stories and experiences I love that. I'm writing it down. I'm putting it in my room wherever I need it. I think that that is like chef's kiss of just beautifully written. So that is the first section of Atlas of the Heart. And I know that those seem really basic. But I think it's good to have those baseline identifiers within the book. Some of the other emotions that we talk about in the book are comparison, confusion, curiosity, bittersweetness, nostalgia, hopelessness, despair and grief, lovelessness, heartbreak, 
contentment, gratitude, dehumanization, disgust, self-righteousness, pride, humility, all of those really deep, good emotions that we often sometimes just really shy away from, that we don't like to admit that we have, that we don't like to explore. And I'm really excited to share all of these things with you. And I hit my time right on. I wanted to hit 30 minutes and I know I will edit this down. So it might even be less than that, which is great. So thank you guys for listening. I'm so excited to continue to share this information with you and engage with you again in this platform and in this medium. It always means the world to me to hear that you guys listen and see the stats and the downloads and your engagement and just feedback in general is so fabulous. And thank you for sticking with me with a little bit more of a raspy voice than normal. I hope that the next time I record, I'll be back to normal. I hope that you all have a wonderful rest of the day, morning, night, whatever it is, week, weekend, wherever you're listening, whatever you're doing. I hope that you find time today to do something that you love and to connect with yourself. I am sending you all the best, all my love, and we will talk very soon.